If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. We stay the course! We are dead! We are all dead! We're supposed to make the world better place. Well, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! This whole thing is insane! This whole thing is insane! 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane! Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction! Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies, and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live, audio version for thee in this eternal now. Dr. John Lundwall returned to the virtual Alexandria for a spanning presentation on his archaeoastronomy and ancient technologies ideas. Get ready for an in-depth, astrotheological, mythological, and archaeological adventure on Mesoamerican cultures from Native American to Mayan. This research will also include fertility rites, scalping rituals, and the procession of the stars. Being both disturbed and amazed is on your astral menu now. This episode is part of this year's theme of uncovering the mystic, cosmic, and socio-philosophical insights on North American pre-colonial traditions. As the empire's hologram shifts to the east and our culture collapses, it's more important than ever to find the light and dark lessons of the spirits and people of these lands. Cautionary tales and forgotten gnosis for thee, as you'll see in this show, as John reveals both the brutality and elegance of Mesoamerica. Thank you for those of you who support this red pill cafeteria. You are amazing, and your support, company, and feedback help grow this podcast. We need Gnosis more than ever in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times. Expect more violence, wars, addiction, and suicide problems 
mass depression, and societal collapse until more look inward while breaking the outward spell of hating angels. You won't find this high quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom, or many of my guests and their unique insights, anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Don't forget my voice over availability for any podcast, commercial, audiobook, documentary, or whatevs. I'll bring you stellar results with down-to-home professionalism. Other than that, let us to our latest AB Live. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Welcome everybody to AB Live. We are indeed down the rabbit hole on this Saturday night. Saturday night's all right for fighting and it's all all right for gaining insights and revelations. And that's what we do here at Aeon Byte. Welcome everybody who are coming already into the chat room. Very excited tonight about the show. Uh, the first AB Live in a while as I just got back from my adventures in the homeland of Portugal, the ancient land of the Lusitanians, the Galatians, the Moors, and all that. And I had some amazing experiences, both spiritual and intellectual, which I will share in time as I unpacked all the high weirdness that I had there. But it's good to be back in the Empire, and it's good to get some perspective. So with us, very excited to have someone whose work I really enjoyed. I, his book, uh, Mythos and Cosmos, is a book that I go back to when it comes to astrotheology, mythology, uh, and all those sort of uh, lateral disciplines. Uh, he is an amazing mind, and I love his work, and that is Dr. John Lundwall. John, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been too long. Thank you, Miguel. Uh, thanks for having me. I am having some technical difficulties. Every time you spot speak, I, I get a double. I hear you twice. In fact, I'm oh, hearing myself. Right. Really? Well, I think, uh, no, I don't think anybody is. If you guys hear anything strange in the chat room, please let us know because that is just technology. I think it might be this. Let me see if this fixes it. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Whoa, I just lost John. <laughs> I think. I, 
That was an accident. Come back, John. <laughs> I think he actually somehow came back twice with his uh, with his account, so that's why he's getting uh, the double feedback. So hopefully he'll get back to it. Uh, and with us too, we've got Nathan Lee being the co-pilot in our astro theological adventure. Vance has some things that he needs to care take care of it. So he won't be joining us, and uh, but uh, the occult fan will take, take care, care of business. Of so he won't be. Hey, John, you are back, and I think uh, I hope that fixed it. Uh, people in the chat room on YouTube and Facebook said they did not hear any double voices or anything like that. Can you still hear me? I can still hear you, but uh, I, I'm I hear you twice about. Seven seconds in separate. So somehow I'm getting a. I, I'm getting everything I say is repeated seven seconds later. So everything you say I get twice. So that is very strange. I have never heard of this happening before. Well, uh, well, we'll jump onto the presentation. That way, uh, you, we'll put <laughs> ourselves in mute. <laughs> These introductions are quick. <laughs> you got Yeah, you got to roll with the technological punches. It's very simple. We can sit there and bark at the moon all night, all we want. So, yeah, I don't think I really have any house cleaning right now. Again, I am still pretty jet lagged. I'm still trying to get the kids and the house and the dogs and a sense of perspective. I'm still feeling the ayahuasca vibes from all the rituals I did there. So I'm still sort of uh, getting, so I don't, any uh, news or house cleaning I will do in our show on Tuesday when Eduardo Cano joins us to talk about the Anunnaki and we'll do that. So why don't we just jump in? Oh, for the audience too. Because uh, John has a spanning presentation, we will not be taking audience questions unless you have a super chat or there's something important. But uh, so uh, that's what that will be the format tonight. Tonight, and so please uh, sit back and enjoy, John. Why don't we just jump into it? All right. I will put myself on mute, and here we go. Uh, thank you. All right. Yeah, this is. Uh, thanks for having me, Miguel. Sorry for the technical issues. I I, I can't address that, but um, I'm actually hearing myself talk. Repeat. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know how we're going to fix that. It, I mean, I've never seen that happen. If you have, it's almost like you've got two things open, John. Is there another tab that you've opened somewhere? Oh. Uh, two tabs of StreamYard that you might have open. You know what? I just fixed it. Yeah, oh, he's a <laughs> genius. <laughs> I had two tabs of StreamYard. That's open. what. That was, that, yeah. That's what it was. So, okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, we we have overcome the demiurgic forces <laughs> of human error. <laughs> All right. All right. Awesome. Well, well, I'm just going to uh, share what I've been doing for the past five years. Uh, uh, it's a cultural astronomy project. I'm the project leader of the Utah Cultural Astronomy Project. It's a team of archaeologists, uh, surveyors, photographers, rock art specialists, rock art researchers, 
uh, astronomers, photographers, and uh, we're basically uh, surveying and uh, filming ancient Native American sites within the state of Utah and um, showing or discovering, finding, sorting through what kind of astronomical uh, relationships they have. And in so doing, we have made some, actually some spectacular discoveries. So this is the project. Um, just real quick, we, we do publish in peer-reviewed papers, uh, journals. We've been in the American Indian Rock Art Journal, uh, Archaeoastronomy Journals. Uh, we present to the Utah State Parks, Utah Rock Art Research Symposiums. Uh, one of the things we do is we help the state parks in Utah. Uh, well, we help them with whatever they ask, but one of the things we've been able to do is help them with dark sky registrations. Utah has more dark sky spots registered with the International Dark Skies Association than anywhere else in the world. So there's some beautiful dark skies in Utah, um, and it's uh, fun to do that. We also publish in popular venues. You know, last year we had a major spread in the ancient origins. We, we do podcasts, uh, literary conferences, Comic-Con presentations, YouTube. Wow, that's um, great. What is the dark skies? What do you mean by dark skies? The uh, dark skies is um, the IDA, International Dark Sky Association, register um, with them. You have to go through a long series of, of technical things that you have to do. You have to measure how dark your skies are. So you're measuring for light pollution. Uh, you know, every town and city has electric lights and that the, the light just goes up in the atmosphere and it dims the sky. And so if you live in a big city, uh, most people who live near urban areas see very few stars in the sky at night, uh, never really see the Milky Way. Uh, but if you live, you know, a hundred miles away from a city, you still might get light glow, uh, but your skies will be quite a bit darker. And if you live 200 miles away from a city, you'll actually be able to see thousands of stars at night and, and the nebulosity of the Milky Way. So, so a dark skies is a natural resource. And um, I mean, just, you know, in the 1990s, LA had a blackout due to an earthquake and it occurred at like four in the morning and because the power went out across the grid people scampered out of their houses and uh there were hundreds of calls to the fire department to the observatory as people were saying we, they think there's a gas leak in the sky and what they were actually looking at <laughs> is the milky way <laughs> Because they had never seen it, <laughs> not an acid trip or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so uh, to see uh, the Milky Way, or I, I mean, in a true dark sky, my goodness, I've seen the aurora borealis in Utah for of all things. Wow. I've seen goblins and sprites, shooting stars, meteors. Um, uh, you know, one of the things I've seen in southern Utah is the zodiacal light, which is very hard to see. Uh, but it turns out there's a band in the sky that the planets follow, the sun and moon. They're all in the same band in the sky. That's where your zodiac is. And uh, as the planets orbit the sun, all, all the planets are on the same orbital plane except for Pluto, which is a dwarf planet now. 
right. but they leave dust particles behind as they move around the sun and the sunlight will light up those dust particles. And so you get this band of light that goes across the zodiac. Um, that's called the zodiacal light, and it's very hard to see, but I've seen it several times. And so there's actually two bands of light in the sky, the Milky Way and the zodiacal light. So this is what ancient peoples were looking at before urbanization and electric lights. And we've sort of lost that sense of the cosmos uh, because we don't even see it anymore. Anyway, that's dark skies. Uh, I'm just going to introduce archaeoastronomy in the American Southwest. It really begins in the 1970s. You've got here on your screen uh, Chaco Canyon. Let me get a laser pointer up. This is Fajada Butte in the lower right. In the summer months, uh, the sun spill sunlight spills into the canyon at sunrise. And the first thing that gets lit up is this butte in this beautiful golden color. It's probably one of the reasons why uh, the ancestral Puebloans uh, migrated and built there. It's the largest archaeological. Hey, John, I'm going to have to interrupt you. I'm not yeah. seeing. I'm not seeing what's what slide number are you on? I am. Yeah, you're going to have to do another share screen. What are you seeing right now on your screen? You're not, I'm seeing my slide, Chaco Canyon. You're not seeing that? No, no. Try another share screen. Okay. Share screen, share screen. All right. At the stream. Okay. Am I up? Yes, that's yours. Okay. So what slide number are you on? Four. Okay. For some reason, it wasn't moving. Okay, for Chaco Canyon. Okay. Well, now I'm I'm restarting. I'm on Chaco Canyon. You got me. Yeah, number four. But it's it almost seems like try going back to three. See if it moves. Does it move back to three? No, Who's no. It? I have control for some strange reason. Do you want to just let me know when you want me to change a slide? Yeah, I added a few slides. That's the thing. So I've got a few slides in the slide deck you don't have. Um, all right. Well, let's do that. Yeah, for some reason. All right. I'm in slide number four. Okay. All right. Chaco, Chaco Canyon. You got me? I'm not seeing it on the screen. All right. There you go. There you go. All right. So um, the lower right corner, you have that Fajada Butte. On top of Fajada Butte are these stones leaning against the cliff face. I've, I've got in the top right corner. Uh, they don't let you walk up there anymore. I was there a couple of years ago, and I couldn't get up there. There's so many people that have walked to this site that, just the foot traffic has settled the stones, and so the alignment is off because of that. So they don't they don't let people up there anymore. The bottom left, you see those rocks leaning against the cliff face are three slabs of stone which have been altered by the ancestral Puebloans, and uh, light streams through the cracks between the slabs and casts these light daggers on the petroglyphs carved underneath them 
There's a couple spirals. The center picture there shows a light dagger going through the center spiral on summer solstice. Uh, the bottom left, uh, the light frames the spiral at winter solstice. On the equinox, the light dagger is equidistant between the center and circumference of the spiral. This was discovered in the early 1970s by a woman named Anna Sofer. You know, she wasn't an archaeologist or an anthropologist. She was an artist. And, you know, wow. she had the, she walked up there, she saw what was going on, and she recognized what was going on, the artist eye. And so she, it was she who uh, notified academics, notified other people. She started a team. Uh, there was a lot of pushback, you know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but they went and, um, and, you know, began filming this phenomenon. In the canyon, there are several pueblos and kivas, grand structures. I mean, Pueblo Benito is the largest pueblo there, and it had over 800 rooms. It was the largest building in North wow. America until Chicago started to build apartment buildings in the very late 1800s. <laughs> so it's a, it's a massive complex. And as they began looking at those, do you want to go to the next slide? Sure. Slide five. This is uh, uh, um, one of the Pueblos with the Kiva in front of it. Uh, as they began measuring those, they began realizing that the entire site is astronomically aligned uh, in, in many different ways. Many of the walls of the Pueblos line up to the sunrise or sunset on key days, solstices and equinoxes. Surprisingly, many of them line up to lunar positions, especially the lunar standstill cycle called the metonic cycle. The moon goes through an 18.6 year cycle where, I mean, basically, if you watch a moon rise on the horizon in a specific time, in a specific phase, the next time the moon will rise at that same spot on the horizon in the same phase, same time as 18.6 years later. So wow. it has this 18.6 year cycle, which they were tracking, which is really interesting because there's no agricultural reason to track that. So it has to be a religious reason that they're tracking it. Uh, but uh, so they have um, uh, lunar alignments, solar alignments. Uh, so the entire site is uh, astronomically aligned in this picture of the upper left. I'm there about a week before summer solstice, and the sun is just now poking through one of the windows um, of the uh, at sunset. Uh, that big round kiva in front of you is their worshiping space. There's several kivas per pueblo. They're built subterranean. You find them at Mesa Verde. You find them amongst the ancestral Puebloan. It's the connecting point between the worlds, between the divine other world and this world where they perform their rituals and bring up the divine powers from the eternal. Uh, do you want to hit the next slide? So um, that was Chaco Canyon. Uh, this picture here is a picture of Clear Creek Canyon. It's the bluff of Clear Creek Canyon. It's in south central Utah. And this is where I spent two years doing my work the canyon runs east-west there on the right side of the screen. Uh, it's about three miles long. But all those rock bluffs you're looking at, I am across the canyon valley on an opposing 
Rock Rock Bluff are thousands of petroglyph and pictogra uh, pictograph images, over 3,600 images. Wow. And so this is a uh, major Fremont site. Um, so hit next slide. Yeah, so I, one of the slides I added was uh, describing who the Fremont are. Most of our work is uh, studying the ancient Fremont Indian. They live in Utah, parts of Colorado, Wyoming, Nevada, the Four Corners area, from about 300 to 1300 CE. Uh, that early date, it's, it's probably earlier than 300 CE. The problem is, is, you know, it's not a homogenous culture. There's numerous tribes and villages all over this landscape. We don't know if they speak the same language. You know, they, they have different trade networks, uh, so slightly different um, you know, cultural complexes. But what unites them is they have a similar rock art style. They're Anthropomorphs have trapezoid bodies, and we're going to be looking at a lot of those, so you'll see what I'm talking about. They wear moccasins. All the Pueblo uh, Native Americans wear sandals. Um, and so this is farther north in Utah where moccasins are more practical because you do get snow in these high desert valleys in, in, in Utah. Um, they live in pit houses, so unlike Chaco Canyon, which had these mammoth uh, Pueblo constructions, big walls, hundreds of rooms. A Fremont village will be will consist of 20, 30 pit houses, which is a 10 to 20 foot diameter hole dug three or four feet into the ground, and then it has a lattice work of uh, posts and adobe over top of it. Um, and they make grayware pottery. We don't know what they called themselves. They're called the Fremont Indian because one of the first villages of this culture type was excavated by the Fremont River. So that's the name they get. Um, and so we know very little about them. But here we have a petroglyph in this Clear Creek Canyon. Five years ago, I began this study. Um, so I, I'm a founding board member of the Utah Cultural, uh, the, the Utah Valley Astronomy Club. So a bunch of, I would say, amateur astronomers, but uh, there are several people in the club that have massive observatories right. in their backyard, <laughs> and the pictures they take are better than Hubble. I mean, it's unbelievable, the technology that's out there now. And so, um, uh, anyway, uh, Fremont Indian State Park called us and said, we need someone to come down and help us register for dark sky status and run a star party. So I just happened to be the guy that volunteered. <laughs> I went down there with my telescope. I was there for three nights uh, giving public star parties, star tours. It's one of the things I do. Um, and during the day, I just uh, hiked the paths and looked at the petroglyphs. I didn't know anything about the Fremont. I didn't know anything about their rock imagery. Um, I was just enjoying it. And it just so happens that I walked up to this panel at the right moment, because I walked up right when a light shadow phenomenon was going right through the middle of it. Had I been there an hour earlier, I wouldn't have seen it. The panel would be all in shadow. Had I been there an hour later, I wouldn't have seen it. The panel would be all in sunlight. It was just luck 
that I walked up and, and witnessed this. And the other thing that was interesting to me about this petroglyph, it's a geometric shape. The 3,600, 3,700 images, most of them are animals, sheep, elk, deer, tons of anthropomorphs, people, deities, headdresses. Uh -huh. There's plant motifs. But this was something new. This was, oh, now I see everyone. This, <laughs> this has a... Uh, a circle divided into 12 wedges. Uh, in the lower left, one of the wedges has 11 lines in it. And the adjacent wedges each have one line. That's 13 lines. That's a lunar number. 12 wedges is a solar number. And, you know, look, I'm just a uh, astronomer geek. And I just happen <laughs> to know that the difference between a lunar year, a synodic lunar year, and a solar year is 11 days. So when I walked up and I counted the 12 wedges and I counted the 11 lines. I, I thought, are they reconciling a lunar solar calendar? That, that would be rather sophisticated for something like this. And then uh, next slide. That's when I know. And I've kind of painted it, but for an hour during the day, there's a little ledge of rock right above this image. And as the sun reaches its Zenith, uh, the ledge casts a shadow over the entire panel. But then as the sun moves west, uh, there's a little dip in the ledge and it allows for a triangle of light to climb up from the ground and it goes up through the center of the wheel. And in fact, I've got three, uh, go back to the previous slide if you can, Miguel. Sure. In the center of the wheel, you see this big depression. That's a cupule. They've pecked it out using another rock, a harder rock. Mm -hmm. And then down uh, in that wedge with 11 lines, there's a cupule. And to the left of it, there's another cupule. And if you look around, actually, to the left of the entire petroglyph, there are some cupules. So they've pecked these cupules. Go back to the next slide. At the summer solstice, the tip of this triangle, this is all filmed, but I'm not sh showing it. Hopefully the film I do have later, we'll be able to watch. Uh, the tip of the triangle comes up and touches the lower right cupule. Then it rises up and touches the center large cupule. And then it larges, uh, rises up and ends at this top hole. Do you see that at the right. very top? I've yeah. highlighted it. So I, to me, that seems significant. So I began filming this. Um, actually, when I saw this happen, I, I called a friend of mine, John McHugh. He's my research partner. He's a licensed registered archaeologist in Utah. And we formed this study group, which has grown into a, a pretty large team at this point. Um, and we've got five years under our belt and have discovered uh, six major calendar panels through Utah that are original to our team. So that's that's it's really quite exciting. Mm -hmm. Um but what they did on this panel is uh, summer solstice, that triangle of light that I've painted in yellow, uh, comes up, touches the bottom right cupule, goes through the center, ends at the top hole. On uh, halfway between solstice and equinox, the triangle of light has shifted to the left, and the tip touches the bottom left cupule, center cupule, top hole. And then on equinox, it actually shifts all the way to the left of the panel, and it goes almost horizontally, but you know, at about a fifty-degree angle. And it goes up. I wish I had my 
laser pointer so I could point it out, but it, it transects through the middle of the petroglyph differently. So they're using this panel from equinox to summer solstice back to equinox. That's their growing season. That's their agricultural uh, cycle. March equinox to summer solstice to fall equinox. Seven lunar months. That's their entire agricultural cycle. They are harvesting in September and October. They are returning the fields. Uh, so, so that is then becomes an agricultural calendar. And if you look at it, actually the entire image, the wheel, it, it, the entire thing is a phallus. Do you see that? Yeah, that's what people were, <laughs> were mentioning that in the comments section. Is yes. anybody going to bring this up? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, right above uh, is an anatomically correct phallus and testes, right above the mm. wheel. Mm -hmm. um, again, I wish I had my laser pointer, but it's ejaculating. And, and the ejaculation is intersecting two men who have erect phalluses. The entire thing is a fertility panel. Oh, so you yeah. don't look at rock art unless you're willing to look at a lot of penises and vaginas because they're everywhere, <laughs> right? It's fertility image imagery. Yeah. And so uh, this is an agricultural cycle. And on this point, I should just point out uh, the primary purpose of this petroglyph and the way they've carved it to catch the sunlight isn't a calendar. That's its secondary purpose, or maybe it's tertiary purpose. The primary purpose is at the right time of the year, the image is cosmicized by the sunlight. And um, again, I uh, inserted a slide that which you don't have, but this top hole at the very top is different than the cupules. The cupules have been pecked out with rock. That top right hole at the very top has been drilled. They took a bone or a stick and they right. rotated it and they drilled it into the rock face. And to the right of the petroglyph are several more drill holes. And we didn't know why some holes were drilled and some holes were pecked. And so one of our ideas in that top hole and the stick casts a shadow, would the shadow then do anything on the petroglyph? And so we put a stick in there and filmed it through the year. Uh, and it took me a couple months to realize, oh, my goodness. When you put a stick in that hole, the very first thing that lights up on this entire rock face is the tip of the stick, right? It's it's out from the rock face, and when the sun rises on the horizon, the tip of the stick gets illuminated. Right. So if you put a feather, a prayer feather or a prayer bead on a stick, and you put it in these holes, you now are blessing and cosmicizing the prayer feathers and the prayer beads at that time of year. So at summer solstice, you could imbue a ritual artifact, a prayer feather, a prayer bead on a stick on this panel with the power of father's son. Mm -hmm. And then you would take that bead and feather, you put it on your uh, ritual regalia, your costume, your flute, your drum. And now that has the power of the sun. And so it is our, our leading theory is the drilled holes held uh, prayer sticks, prayer feathers, prayer beads, which means the panel was decorated with different feathers and beads as they performed their ritual. And the primary purpose of the panel then is a ritual fertility purpose. The, and the secondary purpose is ca a calendar. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it is. Fascinating. All right. Next slide. Next slide. Okay. This is uh, called Five Finger Ridge. Um, this is where the village of the Fremont was located. It has five knobs. All, all the, that largest hill on the left used to be about three or four times that size. So mm -hmm. let me tell you the tragic story of this. In 1984, this highway right here is Interstate 70, and it was being built. And that entire hill was scheduled for demolition. They were going to bulldoze the silt out of the hill to use as road base for the highway. And, of course, as they began doing that, they began running into Native American artifacts. So the entire thing, uh, project was stopped. This is a federal highway project. It was stopped. Uh, archaeologists from Brigham Young University were called down. And they were essentially given 60 days to do an excavation. Now, the oh rules God. have changed. But 1984, you had 60 days. <laughs> it's insane. It is insane. And so what happened is the majority of that hill got bulldozed. Uh, and the majority of the village is now underneath Interstate 70. So it's lost. But as you can imagine, that created such an uproar nationally, internationally even, and certainly locally in Utah, that... The silver lining to the story is Utah made this site a heritage state park, built a museum, and then has been overseeing it ever since, which means more has been preserved than would have been, despite the loss of the hill and the village. So um, now it's a heritage park with part, full time park rangers that oversee the site, oversee the petroglyphs, uh, a great museum with the artifacts. And so, anyway, just so you know, this is how a lot of archaeology is done. Um, and it's not just, that's global. Uh, generally, things aren't found unless someone's digging a utility trench or a foundation for a building. Uh, a lot of Fremont uh, archaeology is done simply in this way. Road crews run across something. Now the rules are if you run across something, everything has to stop and you have to either come up with an alternate plan or have a total complete excavation. I mean, there's a lot of rules now that, that weren't before. All right, next slide. All right, next slide. Okay, so this is a 3D image of the canyon. And so this is where it starts getting really interesting as far as our research goes. One of the first things we, we did is we took the archaeology reports and we surveyed the canyon. We figured out the length of it, uh, all the orientations of it, and then we wanted to plot out where all the petroglyphs and rock art uh, were located. And to our astonishment, there's two sides to this canyon. The canyon runs east-west, so there's a north side of the canyon and south side of the canyon. All the petroglyphs are carved on the north side of the canyon, all of them. We walked the south side of the canyon miles, could not find a single petroglyph. Um, there is a rock sh cave shelter on the south side called Cave of a Hundred Hands. You cave with pictographs painted. A pictograph is painted. A petroglyph is carved. And so there are pictographs of hands in that cave. That's the only rock art on that side of the canyon, except there is a pictograph of a Native American blanket that was probably created in the 1900s 
uh, by a Native American. So that it's not ancient. Uh, so what we then realized is all the rock art is on one side of the canyon. Why would they do that? There's plenty of rock faces on the other side of the canyon. I don't know why they're doing that. <laughs> so we began uh, taking azimuth readings. Every uh, panel, every rock face that had rock art on it, we'd stand in front of it with our backs to the rock art and take a sighting compass and just take a reading as to what direction the petroglyph was facing. Okay. And we did that. I mean, we didn't do it for all 3,600 petroglyphs, but for thousands of them. And what we discovered is they're all facing south. Almost all are facing southward between southeast, south, southwest. There's a few dozen facing east and west. We found two facing north out of 36, 3,700. Uh, to, to us, this seemed like a methodology. This is there, you know, there's the rock faces turn and twist. You, you can pick a rock face facing any direction on the north side of the canyon, but they're picking the ones oriented southwards. And if you, you know, so here I have a picture in northern latitudes, it's the sun that is declined southwards. So then our leading theory is they're orienting the rock imagery to the sun. It's a form of rock, uh, sun writing. And again, that feeds into the idea that when the sunlight touches the image, it becomes alive. It, it becomes cosmicized. In fact, in the ethnography of the later Pueblos, the Hopi, the Zuni, the Tewa, um, the rock imagery, the tradition is that they're living beings. These, these uh, depictions of anthropomorphs, these deities, are living beings sharing the power of the other world into the tribe. And so what better way to bring a, an image in rock art to life than to have it touched by father, son, especially if it's aligned uh, in a specific way to the sun through the year. And so, so then our, our, our leading theory is that they're oriented southwards towards the sun. As we've gone out of this canyon and have studied other areas through Utah, we still keep these azimuth readings. And so far, the methodology is consistent no matter where we go. About 90% of the rock art faces south and about 9% faces east and west and about 1% face north. And so that is a consistent uh, methodology. Uh, so. Um, Next slide. All right. So I just this is just for fun before I move on. But uh, this is an amulet that was found in one of the pit houses at Five Finger Ridge. And my research partner, John McHugh, showed me a picture of it in the archaeology report and said, what do you think that is? And I said, John, that's a lunar calendar. <laughs> you have two crescents and a hole in the center, 13 uh circular depressions around it and 19 notches on top. That's that metonic cycle. Every 19 years, the moon's rising in the same position, 13 months in a solar year, 13 lunar months in a solar year. The right crescent is uh, uh, the uh, waxing moon. The center is the full moon. The left crescent is the waning moon. That That is a depiction of your entire uh your entire lunar cycle. 
Um, so we actually just wrote a paper on this, and it's uh, about ready for submission. Unfortunately, like in Chaco Canyon, you can go and measure walls, windows, and doors, and specifically point to astronomical alignments. Well, you don't get to do that here in Clear Creek Canyon. Uh, the pit houses that have actually been recovered. Uh, so it's impossible to 100% prove this is a lunar calendar. But with this amulet was found turquoise that was sourced from New Mexico, Arizona, California, seashells from uh, the Gulf Coast and wow. the Pacific Coast, uh, gaming pieces, which are traded at trade, trade fairs. What that tells us is there were trade from the south, probably into Mexico, California, Nevada, uh, and probably into the plains, wow. right? And so there are trade networks that are going on and surrounding Five Finger Ridge in Clear Creek Canyon are several ancestral Puebloan villages that were tracking the lunar cycle, this 19-year cycle. And we have pieces in the excavation we can source to those sites. And so that is our best argument. They have uh, contact with these sites. These sites are, are keeping this lunar calendar. We have this amulet, and it's pretty convincing that it is the 19-year lunar calendar. Next slide. Next slide. All right. Last, last picture for this canyon. Uh, this is another panel, and it's spectacular. Um, it's this big 12-ringed spiral. Has I'm looking at the left picture. There's... Um, uh, a big square sheep, her nose is touching the tail of her foal, an offspring sheep, a spiral is emerging out of her back. Um, so again, what happens here is on summer solstice, the, the sunlight starts at the top of the rock and this sun shadow line just comes down and sweeps across the rock face. But if you notice on this bottom left picture, there's this little guy to the left of the big spiral. Do you see him? Yeah. He's got a feather headdress, two feathers, which are pointed towards the spiral. Do you see those? Yeah. Right on top of his head. The sun shadow line goes right between those feathers, touches the circumference of the spiral, bisects the spiral coming out of the back of the sheep. A few minutes later, it goes right through the center of the big spiral and uh, bisects the horn in the sheep of that big square sheep. Few minutes later, it's touching the back end of that spiral and bisects the mother and a baby sheep. So that is purposeful. And then if you go there, it turns out on equinox, the sun's shadow line has shifted, but they have still manipulated it. So when so this middle picture, when the sun shadow line goes through the center of the big spiral, it bisects the uh, sheep spiral and horn of the sheep. At winter solstice, which is the far right picture, it's actually spectacular. You have to be standing there at sunrise because as soon as the sun breaks the horizon, this column of light just, boom, it appears on the rock face as if someone flips a light switch. Mm -hmm. And it, it touches the back end of that big spiral, bisects the uh, spiral and horn of the big sheep. And so all through the year, they're watching that sun shadow line, and they are literally using that as their template to create the size, position, and proportion of each of these rock images 
so that they catch that sun shadow line in a specific alignment through the year. And that's how they're cosmicizing this image. That brings that to life and brings the power of the sun in the cosmos in, into the rituals and into the tribe. Very impressive. I, I, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say hiking to that panel is not easy. I'm a big guy. <laughs> COVID was not good for me, Miguel. I put on, no. put on, put on a few pounds, despite that pounds. I hiked a ton. But uh, um, hiking to this place is, is pretty precarious. Uh, and so being there on the morning of winter solstice, hiking through the snow uh, can be interesting, to say the least, but totally worth yeah. it. All right. So that was two years of our study. Now we're going to go into a completely different uh, portion of this presentation. After two years, word started to get out what we were doing, and we had a couple people belonging to the Utah Rock Art Research Association living in northeastern Utah called the Uinta Basin. It's where Dinosaur National Monument is located. It, it, it's a vast desert filled with gas and oil deposits, mineral deposits, because millions of years ago, it was a lake bed and it had megafauna, it had dinosaurs, you know, and you can walk across some of the lake bed and literally see turtle shells, you know, in, in, in the, in the bed that they're millions of years old. Um, it, it's really quite something, but it was a, uh, a, a hot spot for the Fremont Indian. And they said, we want you to come up and take a look at a couple of our sites. So let's go to the next slide. So we went up there and we've been there for the past two and a half years. Um, and uh, truly uh, what we have found up and the scratching has been spectacular. The Fremont are not, you know, they're not building big temples like the Maya. They're, they're rural. They're sort of... <laughs> <laughs> they're they're more of the trailer park as opposed to the <laughs> as, as opposed to the big temples you see in Mesoamerica, right? Or even right. in Chaco Canyon, it's much more simple. But in, in here in the Uinta Basin, they have discovered uh, irrigation canals dating to about 225 CE AD, uh, which means that they are growing corn using irrigation at 200-225 CE. So maize has come up. Uh, it's become a staple. And, and the, the culture we're looking at, this is the Fremont between probably 1050 and 1300 CE. Hmm. This is the tail end of their occupation. One of the mysteries of Southwestern archaeology is at 1300 CE, everything collapses. And nobody mm -hmm. knows why. The ancestral Puebloans, Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde, all those people disappear. The Fremont, all these villages, all through Utah are abandoned. Hmm. Um, and so, and interestingly enough, you go all the way to the o Ohio River Valley, Cahokia, right? The big city of Cahokia, which is 20,000 people, another 20, 30,000 people supporting it. That also collapses at the same time. Wow. So we have something going on over half the continent that we're not exactly sure. We we know at the between 1250 and 1300 CE there's a 50-year drought. 
And so climate change is part of this. You're in these high Utah deserts, four to 5,000 feet elevation. If you have a 50-year drought and you have become accustomed to growing maize as your primary staple crop, you know, after five years, you are in serious trouble. And if you add to that raiding parties, uh, you know, from other villages or uh, hunter gatherers coming in from the north or from the west, uh, and they they take the, your crop or they, you know, even kill people in your village, right. it becomes extremely difficult to survive. And so, you know, there's competing theories as to what caused this. But so here we are uh, in northeastern. Utah, Uinta Basin, and the first place they take us is to this site because they think uh, this guy here, this big red pictograph, is a summer solstice alignment. So we go there. This guy's about three feet tall. He's in this little canyon wash. So it runs north-south. That, that rock wall we're looking at faces east. There's a rock wall to the right of the picture facing west. Um, so next picture. Uh, so one of the things we do when we survey a site is, you know, we measure it, we measure the rock art, uh, we look for signs of any erosion on any rock faces that are projecting the sun shadow line. Every once in a while, you know, we find a break in which tells us uh, the sun shadow line we're seeing is probably not the same one that they saw a thousand years ago, 800 years ago. Um, but we also go there at night um, and we look at how, which stars rise and above, rise and set in the local horizon. So right behind this panel, those two dots in the upper left, that's uh, Jupiter and Saturn. So that's the ecliptic mm -hmm. that goes right behind this panel. Uh, and so you would see the Milky Way, uh, vertical out of out of the Wash Canyon and horizontal, um, and so that becomes important for some of, of what we do, and we'll get into that a, a little bit later. Next slide. So here is a uh, closer look. The first thing we see is um, his, this guy's headdress. By the way, is unique. We only find it in the Uinta Basin. It's found nowhere else. So that means it's special to this particular group of Fremont that are painting it on, on this rock face. The other thing we see is there are actually a ton of petroglyphs on this rock face underneath the pictograph. Do you see those? The mm -hmm. next slide will show more. Uh, but some of those are pre-Fremont, and I'll show those to you. But that, what that tells us is this for rock art, for centuries, maybe millennium, but for centuries. So this is going back probably turn of the millennium, maybe into the BCEs uh, where uh, tribes are, are using this rock face and this particular canyon uh, to do whatever they're doing. Next slide. Uh, so a couple of things interested us about this figure. Um, his headdress, so he's got this conical cap it's kind of like an upside down bucket you see that and then he's got these two large protrusions we we they look like rowing oars to us like paddles of a of a boat 
And yeah, so we we named him the Oar-Headed Figure. This is simply our name for it, but it's the name we've published in our papers. Uh, so they look like oars to us. If you want to name it something else and I like it, then maybe we'll rename it. <laughs> but it's the Oar-Headed Figure with a bucket top headdress. In his left arm, he has this fringe staff. And that's a common motif in, in the rock art, except this is the first time we've seen that the fringe staff is actually an extension of the arm. Instead of a hand holding a straight staff, that the staff is actually his arm. It's coming out of his arm and making a curve. And we had never seen that before. It's hard to see in this picture, but his right leg is twice as long as his left leg. You know, Don't know why, but these are things we pick up on. Next slide. So here's a close-up, and um, again, I wish I had my laser pointer out, but the top, our left, that left oar, right to the left of it is a figure. Do you see him? He's got kind of a uh, heart-shaped body, two arms, a round head with two little prongs coming out of the head. Do you see that? Yeah, I see him. Yeah, so that's, that's pre-Fremont. That's not Fremont. The Fremont have these trapezoidal bodies. You look at that pictograph, it's a trapezoid, wide shoulders, narrow hips in this uh, trapezoidal shape. But uh, there's another one of those guys to the left of the, you know, our left of the left arm. His body is almost the shape of a, of a liver or something. And so this is an older layer of rock art style that's pre-Fremont. And then you see all these concentric circles. Actually, the rock face is covered with them. And so when we see a panel with, you know, uh, 12 to 20 concentric circles, um, that generally is a, a sun watching site. So that, that notifies us, hey, we should look at this. Uh, next slide. Okay. C can you play that video? I don't think so. No, I won't play. Well, shoot. That sucks because I was going to show you time-lapse video as to how, how the sunlight works on this thing. Oh, pity. So I'm, I'm going to have to maybe email you uh, some video links, and then you can put those in the show notes, and people can come back and watch them. Sure, sure. Oh, I can uh, add them to the video or something. Oh, and you can add them to the video. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing I can do. Go back to the previous slide. Okay. Actually, go back to the previous one. Let's get a, a little further. Okay, this guy's fine. Um, so what happens on summer solstice is that sunrise, the sunlight... Uh, touches the top of the rock above image and it starts descending but there's a v-shaped crack in the opposing rock canyon wall and the sunlight spills through that and it creates a chevron of light that is cast on this rock face and as it descends it that chevron of light morphs and takes the shape of the basically the headdress of this figure so as it comes down, it fills the headdress in a V. So those oars have light. It's perfect. It's a, it's a perfect uh, intrusion of light. The, the, 
the the top square cap, the upside down bucket is illuminated, but the ores contain the chevron of light. And so that was interesting. But a few minutes later, that chevron of light keeps descending down the rock and it morphs a little more and it wraps that curved staff perfectly. Wow. So that's why the staff is curved. It is aligning mm -hmm. to the sun shadow line of summer solstice that perfectly fills the headdress and then it wraps that curved staff. And then if you keep watching, it keeps going down and there's this little protrusion of shadow that he ends up standing on. And that's why one leg is twice as long as the other, because for him that. to stand on that shadow line, one leg has to be twice as long as the other to perfectly stand on the shadow. And so the entire phenomenon takes 40 minutes for the sun shadow line to sweep across the image. Uh, but the entire image has been molded from her solstice. So it to us, this is an unequivocal uh, calendar, calendric pictograph. Now, as part of our study, we actually photographed uh, the sun shadow line for 30 days before the summer solstice. You get that data, and that's the same data as 30 days after the summer solstice because the light pattern repeats. And then we were also there for equinoxes, winter solstice, uh, cross quarter days. So we have photographed it through the year, but it turns out the alignment I just described only occurs three days before the summer solstice, summer solstice, three days after the summer solstice, seven mm. days a year. Now that is a very tight light alignment. One of the things in Clear Creek Canyon is actually those, the way the light intersects those panels, it actually occurs over weeks. And, you know, we're used to watching Indiana Jones where on a specific <laughs> day, on a specific minute, uh, the light comes through and does its thing. But that's not what they wanted. They, they needed lead time. They needed, because what they're doing is their rituals are uh, associated with the lunar calendar. Right. And so you need two or three week lead time when the sun shadow thing starts happening on your rock image. Then on the next new moon or full moon, you're going to do your ritual. Well, that might be a week or two away. So you need lead time to do this. Also, it's cloudy every other day, right? And so, so in order to see it, you need lead time. A seven-day phenomenon is the tightest we have found. That is very tight. Uh, and so if you miss it three days before or after, you miss it. And you have to wait till next year. And so... Uh, that was impressive to us. Sorry, uh, we'll, we'll get the video for your viewers uh, later. All right, next slide. Mm -hmm. This one or the, the yeah, next, next one? one. Next one. Okay, uh, so I do have this. Here is the V-shape light. Do you see that? Uh, yeah, I do see it. In his headdress, the left image, it's hard to see if you can expand it. Uh, that's wrapping the curved staff and uh, the right image. He's standing on that shadow bump, his feet perfectly touching the shadow line. So again, they've used that sun shadow line on summer solstice to determine the size proportion and placement of that rock art image. Next slide. All right. 
dang it, this next video we're not going to see either. And it's even more spectacular. Um, we uh, Once we saw that, we told our field guides, okay, this is, this is real stuff. We just want to look. Do you know anywhere else in the basin? I mean, it's a couple hundred square miles, right? Anywhere <laughs> else in the basin where we find this figure because he's unique. He doesn't appear anywhere else. This bucket-shaped headdress with these two oar protrusions. Um, and they said, well, yeah, there's actually another place that we also think is a solar shrine. Uh, and he's there too. So uh, we said, take us there. So this is miles away, different canyon. And we find this really interesting sandstone boulder that is covered with petroglyphs. And also pictographs from that same earlier culture. Uh, next slide. Let's. Uh, so here's this uh, boulder. It's actually uh, broken in half vertically, but then it's also broken in half horizontally. The front part of it has broken and fallen, and the right part of the broken part fell over. So you see the rock slab behind that guy in the left image. Mm -hmm. And so what that leaves then is this rock spur sticking out that you can stand under. We're going to see that in a second. This right picture, I'm actually standing behind the boulder, looking through the crack to the opposing um, uh, horizon. Uh, next slide. And so here we are. Uh, uh, that center picture is I'm st standing underneath that rock spur and it's jutting out and it's pointing. Do you see there's this little notch on the horizon? So there's that opposing bluff and mm. then sort of that dark space and then the rising bluff to the left. Do you see that? Yeah, we do see it. Yeah. So there's this notch on the horizon that the rock spur is pointing to. Now, right at the base of that rock spur is this figure and that's the ore head. It's a completely yeah. different stylization, but you his bucket headdress is indicated by the two eyes and then two mirroring dots up top. Do you see that? Yeah. They're indicating the bucket shape, and then the two oars are just these pecked lines. And interestingly enough, he's pecked over top these two red pictographs, which are those heart-shaped uh images from the pre-Fremont peoples. And so on the other panel, it was a pictograph carved over earlier uh, petroglyphs. In this panel, it's a petroglyph carved over earlier pictographs. All right. Um, so unfortunately, we're not going to see the time-lapse video, which is actually spectacular. Um, that was the next slide. Oh, can you play it? I don't think so. No, there's no way to play it. It's it, it's turned it into an image. Okay. Well, what happens is um, as you're standing there on summer solstice, the sun reaches the zenith, which is overhead. You can't see it underneath the rock spur. But as it starts setting in the west, as you stand underneath that rock spur, the sun actually clings to the left edge of the rock spur all the way down the sky. And then it sets right into the notch that it's pointing to. So this is a horizon-based astronomical viewing point, which is uh, widely used in these cultures. So this is a sun shrine where they're watching the summer solstice 
sunset. The other, the other place was the summer solstice sunrise. This is the summer solstice sunset. If it's the same culture, the same group of villages performing these same rituals, you probably have one clan, a sun priest in one clan in charge of the sunrise, another one in charge of the sunset. And so they've got these different uh, sacred shrines where they are cosmicizing their rock art and their rituals for their agricultural cycle. Again, we'll have to show that time. The time lapse is really cool because when the sun sets, we get a solar flash and it's really impressive. Wow. Um, so next slide. All right. So there is uh, a still image of the sunset underneath their summer solstice. So you can see how it ends, ends up looking. Well, this got us uh, really excited. That's two ore heads, two solar shrines. <laughs> uh, that's two for two. What else do you got? So we began our search across, you know, 100, 150 square miles of, of, of desert, of bluffs, of cliffs, of canyons. Next slide. Oh, this is the back of that boulder. Uh, you can see the, the sun setting at summer solstice. Next slide. Uh here are the two images. Um, that first one with the chevron of light filling his headdress. I, I time lapse. Uh, was there any sun shadow phenomenon happening on this second figure at the horizon based shrine? And it turns out this sun shadow line that goes down the edge of his oar and bisects his face actually stays there for about an hour. It doesn't move. Mm -hmm. And so to us, that was significant. It's not unequivocal, but it was significant. Uh, so that's probably why they placed that figure there, because that's how the shadow line, it bisects his face, follows that or during the entire sunset. All right. So we know he's a solar figure at this point. This or headed bucket head uh, <laughs> is associated with the summer solstice. We know that for sure. Certain. We've got the video. Uh, we've got, you know, months of photography on it. Next slide. Oh, I forgot. So we begin looking. <laughs> uh, this left image, that's actually uh, probably a, uh, he's a warrior. He's a sun warrior. Uh, his right arm, he's holding a sun shield, which is a spiral surrounded by, you know, by the sun rays. To, under his left elbow, that's your oarhead. His, the oars are prolonged. The bucket shape is missing. Um, but we know that's an oar head for a couple of reasons. The guy's left hand is holding what looks like a mushroom. Do you see that? Uh, that, yeah, yeah. that long, there's this bulbous sort of shape with this long thing coming out of it. Kind of looks like a tree or a mushroom. Right. right? Underneath that is a buffalo headdress. That's an anthropomorph of a buffalo head. So look, about this as I do. We first walk up and we go, is that overhead? It doesn't have the bucket shape. It's probably not. It's got a buffalo near it. It's got a, a, a sun warrior. Um, and what is this mushroom tree? Interestingly enough, 50 feet away from this guy is this right image. And again, we look at this. Is this the oar head? Because his oars are pointing straight down. Right. Do you see that? 
yeah. and we not seen that. And so we're like, I, th those could be hair bobs. They could be feathers that, you know, it doesn't seem to be like the ore head. Uh, but what's interesting is there's this um, bucket shape above his eyes. Do you see that? Uh, and so shade above his eyes. Th th there's two eyes in his oh, head. Oh, okay. So yes, yes. And then there's that uh, you know trapezoid bucket shape above his eyes. So mm -hmm. we find that in the ore head in other images. So he might be an ore head, but but uh, one of our uh, team members, Tina was the one to actually uh, walk in front of this image right at the right moment, because look what happens on summer solstice. <laughs> this light spear rises up from the ground and complete and goes right to the center of the tri-spiral on this figure. And actually I've also got that time-lapsed and that if you look at that tri-spiral the lower line that meets the circumference on the left there, uh, the tip of that sun spear touches that point and it follows that lower line until it rises up to fill the center. And then it follows the, the line um, going to the other side of, of the spiral. So the entire spiral has been carved to catch the tip of that sun spear through, through the hour that it happens in, at the summer solstice. And again, this happens seven days of the year. This is another very tight alignment. So um, a highly potential ore head, but another solar alignment. Th these are uh, these are pretty incredible. The, and so we're getting quite excited. Next slide. Uh, another uh, panel. Um, again. This uh, left figure, I, I really like this panel. His oars are curved. Do you see? They're not yeah. straight out. They're curved. And so we're starting to see lots of variations of this solar deity uh, and what they do with his oars. In fact, in some of them, they turn into corn cobs. In some of them, <laughs> uh, they turn, you know, they, they face all the directions, up, down. Um, we know this guy's an oarhead. He's got, again... Right above his eyes, you see his two eyes and mouth. Yeah, right yeah. above his eyes is this, uh, it's this, they've got a hole there, a, uh, a, a pecked mark there. And it's like an opening into the other world. Mm. And so um, we repeatedly find that in the bucket shape on other images. But whenever we see someone like this with that hole above the eyes and he's got two oar-like protrusions, it's probably the oar head. What interested us about this panel is to the right is another buffalo head, right? That big figure to the right. And connecting the two are 29 counting dots. And 29 is the number of the lunar days in a lunar synodic month. And that made us think, my goodness, is the buffalo figure a lunar deity? And the oar-headed figure a solar deity? You have these two spirals. And to the left, you see two square-headed figures with no arms. Do you see those guys? Yeah, I see them. Yeah. Well, about a half third of a mile away, those two guys appear again with a five-pointed star carved between them. And they keep appearing in pairs. They're twins. And, and so, actually, they're probably related to the hero twins of Mesoamerica. The two 
hero twins that go into the underworld uh, in the Popol Vuh, for example, in the Maya uh, uh, mythology, uh, where they learn the secrets of rebirth. Uh, you know, they take heads, the heads regrow, and uh, it's all part of a Venus cycle because the the twins are Venus as morning star and Venus as evening star. And the Venus cycle in Mesoamerica was connected to the maize agricultural cycle. And we're going to be talking about that in a second because it was also connected to headhunting. And we're going to be talking about that in a second. If those represent Venus, then we have a solar deity, 29 dots, probably a lunar deity. We're looking at the entire Fremont cosmology in this panel, Venus, sun, moon, the two spirals are probably the northern and southern sky. So this is their, whatever it is, it's it's the cosmovision of this uh, Fremont. So that's why we like this panel. Next slide. Yeah, I can't think of anything better than Orhead yet. I think it's the best name. Mysterious <laughs> <Okay>. Orhead. <laughs> like a horror movie villain, too. <laughs> Orhead has arrived. But. The Orhead, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, next slide. And uh, yeah, keep talking. I have to let a cat out. Okay, so. well, actually, the next slide begins our horror movie. <laughs> right. Um, and there you have it. In our second part... John really gets into the dark scalping cult of this continent, as well as how the ancients viewed the cosmos. Simply amazing research. So please continue to support this red pill cafeteria and to get the second part. It will cost you less than a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics are more critical than ever in this Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. This is our time to shine like crazy diamonds. We high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around 200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.